Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you were trying to gain some time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed and the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes time and seasons. He disposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells in him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. 
Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you rule over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. 
but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron in the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Well, that was an epic reading, and many thanks to Jez, Hannah, Claire, and Tari for taking us through it. We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel today, and as you can tell from that chapter, Daniel is dramatic. It has proved a favourite with children for many, many years. And I have a challenge today for Ben Tyndall, who is nine years old today. Ben, find the story of the three friends being thrown into the fiery furnace and surviving, and then find the story of Daniel in the lion's den. You will never forget them. Now, Daniel is full of life. It's full of heroism, tension, drama. And as we see in the future weeks... um, future weeks to come the second half of the book is also full of dramatic visions and this drama is deliberate in the words of one old testament scholar robert file daniel is dramatizing a lesson about basic attitudes and discipleship daniel is dramatizing questions and decisions that believers in every generation have to make and putting it in the most vivid terms it's a tale of crisis we heard last week how the state of judah was being defeated by the mighty babylonian empire in the east and its leadership were being carted off into exile the brightest and best of the aristocratic and royal families are now being firmly housed in babylon and enculturated there this is a catastrophic defeat for god's people daniel shows us four young men, teenagers, being uprooted and transplanted into an alien culture that shares none of their beliefs and values. And this pagan culture is actively trying to squeeze them into its mould and conform them to its way of life. The goal is assimilation so that they will become good Babylonians and go back to their own country in future to extend Babylon's control. But they resist. And last week we considered the manner of their resistance. They were able to be both courageous and courteous. We've thought about how difficult it can be to hold those two things together and yet how necessary. And we will see those qualities in action again today. And we thought also about how Daniel is a tale of two kingdoms. On the one hand there are the visible kingdoms of this world with its power and its pomp and prestige and ceremony look so powerful and so overwhelming. And then there's the invisible kingdom of God, which often appears to be on the losing side and requires faith and endurance and the long view and living with God's future in mind. So Daniel helps us to bring our doubts out into the open. 
It prompts us to ask the question, where is God right now in my world? Who's really in control? Who's in control of my life? And it helps us to learn how to live by faith. I'm going to point out three vital things in our passage today. They are the human problem, the divine prerogative, and the gospel proclamation. The human problem, the divine prerogative, and the gospel proclamation. Firstly, the human problem in verses 1 to 14. Now, chapter 2 begins with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, sometime early in his reign. It says it's in the uh, second year. And Note that this is the most powerful man in the world at that time, a ruler of unbelievable authority. But he's not sleeping well. Why ever not? Because he has bad dreams. Verse 1 reveals that his mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep. So he summons representatives from the entire civil service and makes an unusual demand. Tell me what I have dreamed. Now, there's something faintly comical, maybe a little bit pantomime, about this list of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers. And to modern ears, it all sounds a little bit hocus-pocus, a little bit like uh, Arabian Nights. But in the ancient Near East, some two and a half thousand years ago, this is the official civil service. Every powerful regime has backup agencies and task forces, government departments and quangos. And they are able to access information, look in the archives, discover policies and suggest action. And in their culture, dreams were viewed as highly significant. Dreams were seen as possible means of divine revelation. And bad dreams could be very serious omens, especially if you didn't act on them. Scholars have found dream books from this period, from this culture, full of data about dreams that had been had and how to interpret them. So it's not unusual for these advisors to be summoned and to be asked for input. They respond in a typically polite fashion, may the king live forever, which is quite ironic in view of what we're going to find out later on. And naturally, they ask him to tell them the dream so that they can go away and ponder it. But this is where the wheels come off, because in verses five and six, the king makes an extraordinary demand. He gives them both a stick and a carrot, but the stick is pretty big. He says, I want you to tell me my dream, and if you don't, listen to what he says, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Now, it might sound extreme, but there's actually evidence that these kings sometimes did things like this. So, <laughs> this isn't how the uh, civil service expected things were going to play out. Probably they were experiencing some shock and fear, so they reply again in verse 7, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. But it doesn't work. In verse 8, the king turns surly. After all, remember, he's just had a very bad night. And he says, I'm certain that you're just trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. Now, there's probably a fair point in some ways. You know, they are trying to buy time. They're feeling a bit sick. They're hoping that they can get some breathing space and maybe that the king will calm down and forget about the incident. But then he seems to drift into a kind of paranoia. In verse 9 he says, If you don't tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. Well, that's a little bit over the top, isn't it? I mean, they haven't done much conspiring yet. but They're, they're really stuck. So 
Then the astrologers step forward and they try and put up a defense based on precedent, as every good lawyer will. Verse 10, no king has ever asked such a thing. In other words, this is unreasonable. What the king asks is too difficult, they say. And notice verse 11, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. We'll come back to that. Now, what is going on here? The Bible is revealing something very important about us. It's the basic human problem, our predicament. Just consider the person who's having the dreams. Extremely powerful. Nebuchadnezzar is the absolute ruler of the greatest superpower in his time. He can command people to do anything and they have to do it or he can have their head. His wish is their command. He is a person of extraordinary wealth and prestige. Every year he would send out his expeditionary force to the farthest flung extremes of the empire to bring in the taxes. His influence stretches to the corners of the known world. Would you think that such a person would ever feel insecure? And yet he does. All the evidence here suggests that Nebuchadnezzar is afraid. He finds himself deeply troubled by these dreams. He's threatened by a realm that he cannot control. Some scholars think that Nebuchadnezzar had actually forgotten the details of the dream, but he was still troubled by what he could remember, and that's why he asked them to tell it to him. And then there's this big grand summons of all the civil service. Everybody's called in. And then there's this exorbitant demand and this extreme threat. And you know, it's what my kids would call a flex. Nebuchadnezzar is pointing out, I'm in charge here and I want you to do what I've told you. He's trying to show he's in charge, but all the while his authority is slipping through his fingers because he doesn't really feel like he is in charge. And so this situation exposes the weakness and the insecurity of even the most powerful man in the world. And it exposes the hollowness of his establishment. The story has brilliantly built up a picture of a volatile, insecure king ready to use his power in an arbitrary way. And it's exposed the so-called wise men of Babylon that they have nothing to offer him because of their very real human limitations. You know, this story is revealing our human problem, which is that we're not in control. We're very limited. And so we fear. We're out of control. It leads us to great anxiety and insecurity at the deepest levels. Does that sound familiar? It should do if you're being honest this morning. Think about most of the things in your life that really matter to you. You have a lack of control over them, don't you? You can't secure them for the future or even the present. And even if you were as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar, you would still be out of control. So let me ask, what keeps you awake at night? What is it that plays in your mind? You turn it over and over so you can't get to sleep. Or, or maybe worse, you wake up in the small hours in the dark and you're just this, it's there in your head. You know how things get bigger at night? Ordinary worries become overwhelming problems. 
Many people experience anxiety in the day, but at night it can turn into a full-blown panic attack. You feel terribly alone. Or perhaps dreams occur as the subconscious tries to sort through all the stuff that's been going on in our heads through the day. Let me ask you, friends, what do your fears and your insecurity reveal about what your heart is trying to rest in? I'll say it again. What do your fears and insecurity reveal about what your heart is trying to rest in? Let me be open with you. Why was I awake at 3.30am this morning, worrying about this sermon? Whether it would be any good? Because I was afraid. Afraid that I might be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Afraid that I might not, it might not be any good. Afraid that I might be exposed as an imposter. You know, it's easy as a preacher to feel like you're on trial every week. That you are only as good as your last sermon. What is your heart trying to rest in? That's me. What about you? We need to be honest with ourselves if we're going to make progress. We need to be honest with God. He, know, he knows about it already. We are out of control. We are insecure. We are afraid. We are always tempted to put our trust in things that we can see. We can touch them, taste them, hear them. Things in this world. And those things will always disappoint us. and cannot bear the weight of our lives. That's the human problem. But there is an answer to it. And here's the second point. And how glorious is this? There's the divine prerogative. Something that belongs to God alone. The divine prerogative. Now, in one respect, these wise men were right in verse 11 when they said, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. But in another respect, they were dead wrong because there is a God in heaven and he does reveal himself to people. And there would come a day when he did live among humans sometime in the future. But we're going to pick up the story right here in verses 12 to 14. The furious king has just ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. This is a decree that makes cabinet ministers bullying civil servants look a little bit tame, doesn't it? Arioch, the commander of the guard, has wearily taken down his sword and got his men and gone out to find these poor souls and put them to death. And this decree will also mean the end of Daniel and his three friends who've recently passed the graduate trainee scheme. And once again, we find Daniel acting with courage and courtesy. This time it's described as t wisdom and tact. And in a context of extreme emotion and feelings running high and volatile decisions, Daniel is a model of poise and calm. In verse 15, he calmly tries to establish the facts behind this harsh decision and Arioch tells him what had unfolded. And then in verse 16, he makes a, a, a careful but bold move and he goes in to see the king and he basically cleverly offers to interpret the dream and asks for more time at the same moment. And perhaps the king is now regretting his rash decision, so gratefully he accepts Daniel's offer. But just imagine what is going through Daniel's mind at this point. He doesn't, you know, do this for a living. How on earth is he going to know what the dream was and then interpret it? And by the way, the clock is ticking. He's just put his head on the block. Whoever heard of a person telling someone what their dream was without a single clue? But notice how he then goes and deals with it 
in the community of faith. Daniel is not a solitary hero. Verse 17, he goes straight to his three friends, his three believing friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And he tells them what has happened. And then he pleads, urges them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Now, just notice this language, God of heaven. It's quite unusual, a rarer term. It's not normally used before the exile. But here it's the true God. And it makes the point that he's the God of heaven. All the things that the Babylonians worship and serve and try and read the stars and the sun and the movement of the planets and astrology, all of those things are underneath the God who made them all and owns them all and sustains their every movement, the God of heaven. And so they come to that God and they pray for mercy. They plead for their lives. They're asking an unseen God to do something that is impossible. And in the night, God reveals this mystery to Daniel. Like a riddle that can't be solved, he's given the answer. Now, I just love what happens next, because before we even hear what this dream was and its interpretation, Daniel bursts into song, a song of praise. And it shows that Daniel's mind and his heart are full of the God of Israel, the God of his ancestors, and that all of Daniel's confidence is actually rooted in a solid theology. Here it is in verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things and knows what lies in darkness. Nothing is hidden from him. You see, there is only one who owns all power and wisdom. He's the one that changes the times and the seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Daniel understands that the God of heaven, the God of Israel, is not a local deity. He is the king of kings, the ruler of the universe. This God is in control of history. Empires rise, empires fall, and he goes on. They rise and fall at his permission and his command. Until quite recently, the story of history was the story of empire. You know, the largest empire that ever existed geographically was the British Empire. Quite extraordinary, given it all was rooted in a small island. They said that the sun never set on the British Empire because it extended around the globe. But the sun did set on it. And an American friend of mine pointed out to me yesterday that the statistic is, on average, one in every seven days, independence from Britain is celebrated somewhere around the world. So if you're celebrating independence, enjoy it today. Friends, you know, there's something radical about this belief in the sovereignty of God. Because for Daniel, it means that the fall of Judah, the end of the monarchy, which had reigned for 400 years, the end of the line of David, the destruction of the temple and the removal of its precious objects to be put into the Babylonian temple, all of that was permitted by God. (laughs) Yet God is still in control. He can still be trusted. 
even though Daniel cannot make sense of what's just happened in history. See, no one else can be trusted. One uh, scholar, John Goldingay, writes, Most of the time, the people of God have to live without revelations of this kind, yet they are still called to affirm that power and wisdom with Daniel on the basis of a revelation in prospect but not yet seen. We do not in fact see much evidence of the might and power of God in international affairs, but we are called to believe in the wisdom to be revealed. This is how we're to walk. Knowing what God has done in the past, confident in his wisdom in the present, not seeing it now, but trusting him for the future. And then in this case, God does reveal the dream to Daniel. Notice in verse 25 how Arioch tries to gain a little bit of credit for himself. He says, I've found a man among the exiles who can tell the king what his dream means. But when Daniel steps up, he sets the score straight. This is not about Daniel. He gives all the glory to God. He says, it's the God of heaven who can interpret your dream. I, I, he says that this mystery has been revealed to me. It was given to me, not because I'm wise, but because God wants you to know about it, O king. And he tells the very dream that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed, complete with an accurate interpretation. Now, we will come on to that in a moment in our third point. But given what happens here, we, it's, it's appropriate to ask, how should we uh, modern day Christians interpret the role of dreams in divine revelation? You know, there are some amazing stories around, uh, lots of them. I want to tell you a story about a good friend of mine called David Moss who uh, had a clear vision of Jesus. He wasn't even dreaming, he was wide awake, and he had a vision of Jesus. It's only happened to him once, and this is what happened, and then I want to reflect on it with you. David uh, has an unusual claim to fame. He, believed he, he believes he's the only person who's ever played in the national football Jewish and Christian cup finals, and this is how. He was born to a typical East End Jewish family in London, 1952. The family weren't religious, but he went to Hebrew classes. He believed in the God of Israel. He also proved to be one of the best Jewish footballers of his generation, and he played for Britain in the Maccabea Games and in several National Cup finals. But after his bar mitzvah, David pretty much ignored God for the next 25 years. And then at the age of 38, in 1990, his life fell apart. In the space of one year, he was divorced lost custody of his two young children, was made redundant three times and lost his home. He was virtually penniless and near suicidal. And he started reading a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. Now, as he worked through the book, one Sunday evening, David read a chapter that said you should pray directly to God. And he'd never actually done it before. So as he prepared to pray, he suddenly, and for no obvious reason, saw a vision of Jesus Christ. He says, I know that sounds a little wacky when written in cold black and white, but it really happened and that one moment changed my whole life. Yes, me, a tough East End Jewish footballer, just like the Apostle Paul, had received an appearance from the Lord Jesus himself. And believe me, it was Jesus. Don't ask me how I knew, I just did. And it was a vision. After initially feeling very frightened, I then had a warm feeling as if someone was putting their arm around my shoulder and telling me everything was going to be all right. The next day he went into work and told this story to a colleague called Steve, a new friend he'd made 
who had told him that he was a Christian. And Steve proceeded to give him a Bible that he just bought for him. He read the New Testament for the first time and found his heart strangely warmed and sensed that what he was reading was true. Steve and his church prayed for David. They introduced him to a local evangelist called Bernard Palmer. And Bernard encouraged him to go on a course that he was starting to look at the evidence of Jesus claims to be the son of God. And on the course, he heard the testimony of Helen Shapiro and realised that a Jew could in fact become a Christian. Now, what do you make about all those kind of stories? I know that one's true. I, I know I've known David for 20 years. Can God communicate through visions of dreams? Of course he can. He can do anything. Does he do it? It certainly seems so. We have evidence of that. Yet the scriptures never teach us to pray for dreams, to ask for dreams, to look for, for dreams as some sort of superior form of revelation. Dreams actually on their own and visions on their own can be very ambiguous because we're left to figure them out for ourselves. What we actually need is a word from God, a reliable, trustworthy word. And we have that in the Bible. And so as the word of God, the Old and New Testaments, is written down and passed on, accounts of dreams are actually fairly rare. And what we notice, even in a story like David's, is that the, the dream, the vision, needs a word of interpretation. It needs someone to come alongside with God's word and put it in a context. Otherwise, it can be very misleading. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar needs a Daniel to teach him. So we should neither dismiss dreams nor rely on them too much, but submit them to God's word and pray that those who are currently seeing dreams from other faiths and from unreached people groups would be led to a Christian who can explain the meaning of God's word. We thought about the human problem. We, we, we're out of control of our lives and we have fear and insecure. We thought about the divine prerogative. God alone has the wisdom and the power to make sense of our world and even of our dreams. And thirdly and finally, we're going to finish with the gospel proclamation. You might say, where's the gospel here? This is the Old Testament. Well, just think about what Daniel sees and explains. So there's the, the dream and it's of a huge statue, colossal statue that dominates the horizon. And it's dazzling and it's awesome and it's glittering. And it looks a mixture of, of absolute strength and power and great wealth and prestige because the head of the statue is made out of solid gold. And then the next part of the statue is made out of silver, its chest and its arms. And its belly and thighs are made of bronze still, a very strong and powerful alloy metal that was being made by this time. And then its legs were made of iron, perhaps the hardest and strongest metal. And it says that those, that iron could crush and smash all the others. But notice that its feet are a mixture, partly of iron and partly of clay. And the problem with iron and clay is they don't really mix very well. They don't create a strong alloy. They create something that is fatally weakened. And there's something mixed about this that gives it, we might say, feet of clay. And notice too that there is a rock, this rock, which is cut out, not by human hands. And all it takes to destroy the might of the great statue is the rock bowling into its feet and it smashes to the ground and is destroyed so comprehensively that it's blown away like chaff, like the, 
the leftover bits from the threshing floor in the core, just the light stuff, it's gone. Now it's tempting for us to try to identify who are these um, four kingdoms. Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that the each of the, the stages of the statue represents a kingdom. And he tells him that, first of all, the golden head is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Then there's the silver and the bronze. These are successive kingdoms. And then there's the iron, which is mixed. And then there's a rock, which is a kingdom that will never be destroyed, which will come cut out, not by human hands. It's somehow supernatural. And it will destroy all the other kingdoms. Now, we'd love to know who these kingdoms represent, wouldn't we? And various explanations have been offered. We're going to come back to some more of that thinking later in the series because chapter 7 of Daniel goes into more depth. But the emphasis here is on the first kingdom and the fourth, on Nebuchadnezzar and on the one of iron that is smashed. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, is probably quite pleased to hear that he's the golden boy. He's the gold head. And also probably quite relieved to hear that his kingdom isn't going to be the one that gets destroyed. He'll be safe until well after retirement. Things won't go pear-shaped until long after his death. But it also establishes here that the future belongs to God. And at some point in the future, God will directly step in to human affairs and take control of history in a more evident way. This supernatural kingdom will come about by this rock being cut out, not by human hands. God now directly entering our world and doing something that is unexpected. It's, it's, it's kind of against the laws of nature. So what is that kingdom? Now, Daniel never knew for all his wisdom and for all God's blessings on him. It was centuries in the future. But you probably know what that kingdom is, don't you? Who is the rock cut out, but not by human hands? The one human being in history who was born without the aid of a father. He was supernaturally conceived. That gave him a uniqueness. Even though he was fully human, he was also fully God. God entering our world by means of entering our humanity. And Jesus Christ inaugurated, began the kingdom of God, which in time will smash and destroy all rule and authority set against it. It is now here. The kingdom of Jesus is in the world. It is present. It is growing. It is the fastest growing faith in the world. It is more comprehensive and extensive than any other faith in the world. But it is not yet fully here. We do not yet see it fully complete. And in this time period, King Jesus, who rules his kingdom, has offered an amnesty to all his enemies. Anyone may come in and become one of his subjects. Anyone may receive his grace, his gracious pardon and the forgiveness that only he can give. Anyone may come under his good and loving rule. Anyone can turn to Jesus in repentance, turning around their life and faith to come to believe in him. Now notice, back in our text, Nebuchadnezzar rejoiced 
and he accepted some of what he'd been told. In fact, he was so overjoyed that he promoted Daniel to the top job, put him in the cabinet, and gave his three friends important positions in the provinces as well. And Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed this kind of faith statement, but notice carefully, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He's very positive about what he's heard, but he hasn't yet accepted it for himself. Because Nebuchadnezzar still has lots of other gods in his life. And he's just added a new one to the panoply. Daniel's God. Great. The one who gave us the revealing of the mystery. And people can do this. They can come around the community of faith. They can be connected into churches and Christian friends or family members. They can actually like a lot of what they see. They can start to see how the Bible does make sense of things in their lives and in the world. It offers a a credible explanation for our world the way it is and for the way that we are. They can believe all of that and yet not actually be a Christian. I've been reading a couple of biographies of C.S. Lewis. Lewis was a, an atheist who in the early 1930s started to believe in God. He was a great academic, one of the most brilliant minds of his generation. He was an Oxford tutor who later on became a professor at Cambridge in medieval literature. But Lewis converted to theism, to the belief in God, a year or two before he actually became a Christian. So he logically worked out his way to believing in God, a God. But he said that it was almost like a cage in which he was a bird that was trapped and could not escape. And that God's presence in his life was like a, a burning eye that was fixed on him like the burning sun and he could never escape it. There was no joy and happiness and peace in what he'd come to believe in. If you believe in a God who is all-powerful, but you don't have Jesus, you don't have good news. And that's why we need the gospel. Yes, there is a God full of wisdom and power, one who knows all things and controls all things, but that that God became a weak and tiny baby, that the second person of the Godhead, the Son, Jesus Christ, became our Lord and Saviour and even called us his friends, that he's the one now who controls the steering wheel of history and bids us to join his kingdom and his family, that he's the one who adopts us into his family as brothers and sisters. That's the good news, that the kingdom has come and that it's a gracious kingdom and that we can trust all of our fears and insecurities to one who was tempted in every way like we are but never sinned, to one who knows our weakness and brings those weaknesses before the very throne of God and pleads for us. Just as Daniel's friends pleaded for mercy, Christians, Jesus Christ pleads for mercy for you. And he sends his Holy Spirit into your heart to plead for you with inexpressible groans. Jesus and the Spirit are on your side. So let me just ask as we close, wherever you are in terms of your faith commitments, you're listening to a Christian sermon today from Daniel. Are you giving Jesus Christ the glory, the priority that he deserves in your life? Learning what we've learned today about the greatness of God, his divine prerogative to deal with our problems our existential angst don't you think god should not be seen as your personal assistant but as your lord and king 
and Christians, those of us who, who do know and accept and love the Lord and, and believe his word. Let me ask, what Daniel tells the king of Babylon is the gospel. This is the news that everyone in the world needs to hear. How involved are you in making this news known to your neighbours, your friends and your colleagues? And can you use Christmas in one month's time to make it known? Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Father, we want to pause in your presence again and thank you for what you've shown us today of your power and wisdom. Nothing is hidden from you, even the secrets of our hearts. And we bring those secrets to you again. We confess our sins, which are many, and we thank you for your pardon, which is unfathomable. We bring our fears and anxieties and insecurities to you. You knew them already. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with such a sense of your love that all fear would flee away. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.